As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This episode of Waiting In is going to be part two of the Epic of Gilgamesh. The last episode was part one. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should. But here's a quick recap. The gods created Gilgamesh. He was two-thirds god and one-third man. He was kind of a jerk who abused his status and his power over the people he ruled in the ancient kingdom of Uruk. So the gods made him an equal named Enkidu who grew up in the wild. Enkidu was tamed by a woman and brought to Gilgamesh. Enkidu challenged Gilgamesh, and they became friends, and Gilgamesh stopped being such a prick. They both ended up getting bored, so they went on an adventure to the Forest of the Gods where they killed the guardian of the forest, Humbaba, in an effort to become remembered as legendary people. Then they returned home to Uruk. Ishtar makes a sexual advance on Gilgamesh, and Gilgamesh refuses her. Ishtar is aggravated and threatens to unleash the zombie apocalypse but the god Anu allows her to use the Bull of Heaven to get her revenge in order to prevent this. So Gilgamesh and Enkidu fight the Bull and kill it. Enkidu throws a severed leg at Ishtar and says that he'd do the same to her if he had the chance. The gods decide that Enkidu and Gilgamesh together are just too much trouble and that one of them must die. So Enkidu was deemed the killer of Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven, so he is chosen to die. Enkidu falls ill, laments how his life has played out, and dies. Gilgamesh refuses to believe he is dead until Enkidu's body is taken over by worms. Gilgamesh is overwhelmed by grief and confronted by his own mortality. And that leads us right into part two. Chapter four, the search for everlasting life. Bitterly, Gilgamesh wept for his friend Enkidu. He wandered over the wilderness as a hunter he roamed over the plains. In his bitterness he cried, How can I rest? How can I be at peace? Despair is in my heart. What my brother is now, that shall I be when I am dead. Because I am afraid of death, I will go as best I can to find Utnapishtim, whom they call the faraway. For he has entered the assembly of the gods. So Gilgamesh traveled over the wilderness. He wandered over the grasslands, a long journey, in search of Utnapishtim, whom the gods took after the deluge. And they set him to live in the land of Dilmun, in the Garden of the Sun, and to him alone of men they gave everlasting life. At night, when he came to the mountain passes, Gilgamesh prayed. In these mountain passes, long ago I saw lions. I was afraid, and I lifted my eyes to the moon. I prayed, and my prayers went up to the gods. So now, O moon god Sin, protect me. When he had prayed, he lay down to sleep. 
until he was woken from out of a dream. He saw the lions round him glorifying in life. Then he took his axe in his hand, he drew his sword from his belt, and he fell upon them like an arrow from the stream, and struck and destroyed and scattered them. At length, Gilgamesh came to Mashu, the great mountains about which he had heard many things, which guard the rising and the setting sun. Its twin peaks are as high as the wall of heaven, and its paps reach down to the underworld. At its gate, the scorpions stand guard, half man and half dragon. Their glory is terrifying. Their stare strikes death into men. Their shimmering halo sweeps the mountains that guard the rising sun. When Gilgamesh saw them, he shielded his eyes, for the length of a moment only. Then he took courage and approached. When they saw him so undismayed, the man-scorpion called to his mate. This one who comes to us now is flesh of the gods. The mate of the man-scorpion answered, Two-thirds is god, but one-third is man. Then he called to the man Gilgamesh. He called to the child of the gods. Why have you come so great a journey? For what have you traveled so far, crossing the dangerous waters? Tell me the reason for your coming. Gilgamesh answered, For Enkidu, I loved him dearly. Together we endured all kinds of hardships. On his account I have come, for the common lot of man has taken him. I have wept for him day and night. I would not give up his body for burial. I thought my friend would come back because of my weeping. Since he went, my life is nothing. That is why I have traveled here in search of Utnapishtim, my father. For men say he has entered the assembly of the gods and has found everlasting life. I have a desire to question him concerning the living and the dead. The man-scorpion opened his mouth and said, speaking to Gildagmesh, No man born of woman has done what you have asked. No mortal man has gone into the mountain. The length of it is twelve leagues of darkness. In it there is no light but the heart is oppressed with darkness. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun there is no light, Gilgamesh said. Although I should go in sorrow and in pain, with sighing and with weeping, still I must go. Open the gate of the mountain. And the man-scorpion said, Go, Gilgamesh, I permit you to pass through the mountain of Mashu and through the high ranges. May your feet carry you safely home. The gate of the mountain is open. When Gilgamesh heard this, he did as the man-scorpion had said. He followed the sun's road to his rising, through the mountain. When he had gone one league, the darkness came behind, thick around him, for there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. After two leagues, the darkness was thick and there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. After three leagues, the darkness was thick and there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. After four leagues, the darkness was thick and there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. At the end of five leagues, the darkness was thick and there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. At the end of six leagues, the darkness was thick and there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. When he had gone seven leagues, the darkness was thick and there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. When he had gone eight leagues, Gilgamesh gave a great cry, for the darkness was thick, and he could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. After nine leagues, he felt the north wind on his face, but the darkness was thick and there was no light. He could see nothing ahead and nothing behind him. After ten leagues, the end was near. After eleven leagues, the dawn light appeared. At the end of twelve leagues, the sun streamed out. There was the garden of the gods. All round him stood bushes bearing gems. Seeing it, he went down at once. 
for there was fruit of carnelian and vine hanging from it, beautiful to look at. Lapis lazuli leaves hung thick with fruit, sweet to see. For thorns and thistles there were hematite and rare stones, agate and pearls from out to the sea. While Gilgamesh walked in the garden by the edge of the sea, Shamash saw him, and he saw that he was dressed in the skins of animals and ate their flesh. He was distressed, and he spoke and said, No mortal man has gone this way before, nor will, as long as the winds drive over the sea. And to Gilgamesh he said, You will never find the life for which you are searching. Gilgamesh said to glorious Shamash, Now that I have toiled and strayed so far over the wilderness, am I to sleep and let the earth cover my head forever? Let my eyes see the sun until they are dazzled with looking, although I am no better than a dead man. Still, let me see the light of the sun. Beside the sea she lives. The woman of the vine, the maker of wine, Siduri, sits in the garden at the edge of the sea, with the golden bowl and the golden vats that the gods gave her. She is covered with a veil, and where she sits, she sees Gilgamesh coming towards her, wearing skins, the flesh of the gods in his body, but despair in his heart, and his face like the face of one who has made a long journey. She looked, and as she scanned the distance, she said in her own heart, Surely this is some felon. Where is he going now? And she barred her gate against him with a crossbar and shot home the bolt. But Gilgamesh, hearing the sound of the bolt, threw up his head and lodged his foot in the gate. He called to her, Young woman, maker of wine, why do you bolt your door? What did you see that made you bar your gate? I will break in your door and burst through your gate. For I am Gilgamesh, who seized and killed the bull of heaven. I killed the watchmen of the cedar forest. I overthrew Humbaba, who lived in the forest. And I killed the lions in the passes of the mountain. Then Siduri said to him, If you are that Gilgamesh, who seized and killed the bull of heaven, who killed the watchmen of the cedar forest, who overthrew Humbaba that lived in the forest, and killed the lions in the passes of the mountain, why are your cheeks so starved? And why is your face so drawn? Why is despair in your heart and your face like the face of one who has made a long journey? Yes. Why is your face burned from heat and cold? And why do you come here wandering over the pastures in search of the wind? Gilgamesh answered her, And why should not my cheeks be starved and my face drawn? Despair is in my heart and my face is the face of one who has made a long journey. It was burned with heat and cold. Why should I not wander over the pastures in search of the wind? My friend, my younger brother, he who hunted the wild ass of the wilderness and the panther of the plains. Nay, friend, my younger brother, who seized and killed the bull of heaven and overthrew Humbaba in the cedar forest. My friend, who was very dear to me and who endured dangers beside me. And Kidu, my brother, whom I loved. The end of mortality has overtaken him. I wept for him for seven days and nights, till the worm fastened to him. Because of my brother I am afraid of death. Because of my brother I stray through the wilderness and cannot rest. But now, young woman, maker of wine, since I have seen your face, do not let me see the face of death, which I dread so much. She answered, Gilgamesh, where are you hurrying to? You will never find that life for which you are looking. When the gods created man, they allotted to him death, but life they retained in their own keeping. As for you, Gilgamesh, fill your belly with good things, day and night, night and day, dance and be merry, Feast and rejoice. Let your clothes be fresh. Bathe yourself in water. Cherish the little child that holds your hand, and make your wife happy in your embrace. For this, too, is the lot of man. But Gilgamesh said to Sidiri, the young woman, How can I be silent? How can I rest when Enkidu, whom I love, is dust? 
and I too shall die and be laid in the earth. You live by the seashore and look into the heart of it. Young woman, tell me now, which is the way to Utnapishtim, the son of Ubaratutu? What directions are there for the passage? Give me, oh, give me directions. I will cross the ocean if it is possible. If it is not, I will wander farther into the wilderness. The winemaker said to him, Gilgamesh, there is no crossing the ocean. Whoever has come since the days of old has not been able to pass that sea. The sun in his glory crosses the ocean. But who besides Shamash has ever crossed it? The place and the passage are difficult, and the waters of death are deep which flow between. Gilgamesh, how will you cross the ocean? When you come to the waters of death, what will you do? But Gilgamesh, down in the woods you will find Urshanabi, the ferryman of Utnapishtim. With him are the holy things, the things of stone. He is fashioning the serpent prow of the boat. Look at him well, and if it is possible, perhaps you will cross the waters with him. But if it is not possible, then you must go back. When Gilgamesh heard this, he was seized with anger. He took his axe in his hand and his dagger from his belt. He crept forward and he fell on them like a javelin. Then he went into the forest and sat down. Urshanabi saw the dagger flash, and he heard the axe, and he beat his head, for Gilgamesh had shattered the tackle of the boat in his rage. Urshanabi said to him, Tell me, what is your name? I am Urshanabi, the ferryman of Utnapishtim, the faraway. Gilgamesh is my name. I am from Uruk, from the house of Anu. Then Urshanabi said to him, Why are your cheeks so starved and your face so drawn? Why is despair in your heart and your face like the face of one who has made a long journey? Yes, why is your face burned with heat and cold, and why do you come here wandering over the pastures in search of the wind? Gilgamesh said to him, Why should not my cheeks be starved and my face drawn? Despair is in my heart, and my face is the face of one who has made a long journey. I was burned with heat and with cold. Why should I not wander over the pastures? My friend, my younger brother, who seized and killed the bull of heaven, and who overthrew Humbaba in the cedar forest, my friend who was very dear to me and who endured dangers beside me, and Kidu, my brother whom I loved, the end of mortality has overtaken him. I wept for him seven days and nights till the worm fastened to him. Because of my brother, I am afraid of death. Because of my brother, I stray through the wilderness. His fate lies heavy upon me. How can I be silent? How can I rest? He is dust, and I too shall die and be laid in the earth forever. I am afraid of death. Therefore, Urshanabi, tell me which is the road to Utnapishtim. If it is possible, I will cross the waters of death. If not, I will wander still farther through the wilderness. Urshanabi said to him, Gilgamesh, your own hands have prevented you from crossing the ocean. When you destroyed the tackle of the boat, you destroyed its safety. Then the two of them talked it over, and Gilgamesh said, Why are you so angry with me, Urshanabi? For you yourself cross the sea by day and by night. At all seasons you cross it. Gilgamesh, those things you destroyed, their property is to carry me over the water, to prevent the waters of death from touching me. It was for this reason that I preserved them, but you have destroyed them, and the Urnu snakes with them. But now, go into the forest, Gilgamesh, with your axe cut poles, one hundred and twenty. Cut them to sixty cubits long, paint them with bitumen, set on them ferules, and bring them back. When Gilgamesh heard this, he went into the forest. He cut poles one hundred and twenty, he cut them sixty cubits long, he painted them with bitumen. He set on them ferules, and he brought them to Urshanabi. Then they boarded the boat, Gilgamesh and Urshanabi together, launching it out on the waves of the ocean. For three days they ran on, as if it were on a journey of a month and fifteen days, and at last Urshanabi brought the boat to the waters of death. 
Then Urshanabi said to Gilgamesh, Press on, take a pole and thrust it in, but do not let your hands touch the waters. Gilgamesh, take a second pole, take a third, take a fourth pole. Now Gilgamesh, take a fifth, take a sixth, take a seventh pole. Gilgamesh, take an eighth, a ninth, a tenth pole. Gilgamesh, take an eleventh and twelfth pole. After one hundred and twenty thrust, Gilgamesh had used the last pole. Then he stripped himself. He held up his arms for a mast and his covering for a sail. So Urshanabi, the ferryman, brought Gilgamesh to Utnapishtim, whom they call the Far Away, who lives in Dinan, in the place of the sun's transit, eastward of the mountain. To him alone of men the gods had given everlasting life. Now Utnapishtim, where he lay at ease, looked into the distance, and he said in his heart, musing to himself, Why does the boat sail here without tackle and without a mast? Why are the sacred stones destroyed? Then why does the master not sail the boat? That man who comes is none of mine. Where I look, I see a man whose body is covered with skins of beasts. Who is this that walks up on the shore behind Urshanabi? For surely he is no man of mine. So Utnapishtim looked at him and said, What is your name, you who come here wearing the skin of beasts, with your cheeks starved and your face drawn? Where are you hurrying to now? For what reason have you made this great journey, crossing the seas whose passage is difficult? Tell me the reason for your coming. He replied, Gilgamesh is my name. I am from Uruk, from the house of Anu. Then Utnapishtim said to him, If you are Gilgamesh, why are your cheeks so starved and your face so drawn? Why is despair in your heart and your face like the face of one who has made a long journey? Yes, why is your face burned with heat and cold? And why do you come here, wandering over the wilderness in search of the wind? Gilgamesh said to him, why should not my cheeks be starved and my face drawn? Despair is in my heart and my face, is the face of one who has made a long journey. It was burned with heat and with cold. Why should I not wander over the pastures? My friend, my younger brother, who seized and killed the bull of heaven and overthrew Humbaba in the cedar forest. My friend, who was very dear to me and endured dangers beside me. And Kidu, my brother whom I loved. The end of mortality has overtaken him. I wept for him seven days and nights till the worm fastened to him. Because of my brother I am afraid of death. Because of my brother I stray through the wilderness. His fate lies heavy upon me. How can I be silent? How can I rest? He is dust, and I shall die also and be laid in the earth forever. Again Gilgamesh said, speaking to Utnapishtim, It is to see Utnapishtim, whom we call the faraway, that I have come this journey. For this I have wandered over the world. I have crossed many difficult ranges. I have crossed the seas. I have wearied myself with traveling. My joints are aching, and I have lost acquaintance with sleep which is sweet. My clothes were worn out before I came to the house of Siduri. I have killed the bear and hyena, the lion and the panther, the tiger, the stag, and the ibex, all sorts of wild game and the small creatures of the pastures. I ate their flesh and I wore their skins, and that was how I come to the gate of the young woman, the maker of wine, who barred her gate of pitch and bitumen against me. But from her I had news of the journey, so then I came to Urshanabi the ferryman, and with him I crossed over the waters of death. O Father Utnapishtim, you who have entered the assembly of the gods, I wish to question you concerning the living and the dead. How shall I find the life for which I am searching? Utnapishtim said, There is no permanence. Do we build a house to stand forever? Do we seal a contract to hold for all time? Do brothers divide an inheritance to keep forever? Does the flood time of rivers endure? It is only the nymph of the dragonfly who sheds her larva and sees the sun in his glory. From the days of old there is no permanence. The sleeping and the dead, how alike they are. They are like a painted death. What is there between the master and the servant when both have fulfilled their doom? When the Anunnaki, the judges, came together, 
and the Mimetan, the mother of destinies. Together they decree the fates of men. Life and death they allot, but the day of death they do not disclose. Then Gilgamesh said to Utnapishtim the faraway, I look at you now, Utnapishtim, and your appearance is no different from mine. There is nothing strange in your features. I thought I should find you like a hero prepared for battle. But you here are taking your ease on your back. Tell me truly, how was it that you came to enter the company of the gods and to possess everlasting life? Utnapishtim said to Gilgamesh, I will reveal to you a mystery. I will tell you a secret of the gods. So that's it for this part of the Epic of Gilgamesh. So this chapter kind of reminds me of Fat Thor from the Avengers. So we have Gilgamesh, this big, glorious hero, and all throughout this story you see people going, wait, you're Gilgamesh? Why do you look this way? And at one point, Siduri, the wine lady in the Garden of the Gods, actually thinks he must be, you know, like a thief or somebody who shouldn't be there. You know, what the heck are you? You're not Gilgamesh. And he's very out of his element, but he's still Gilgamesh, right? We see him killing some lions, he confronts those scorpion monsters, and then out of just spontaneous rage, he breaks and destroys a whole bunch of... uh Urshanabi's stuff. And then it turns out that that's the stuff that he needed to get across the ocean. So then Urshanabi has him go fetch a whole bunch of other stuff so that he can, can get across the ocean to finally go meet Utnapishtim, which is his ultimate goal. Now this next part is going to be the part that everybody's probably the most familiar with, with the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's going to be the Flood story. So we'll jump right into that. Chapter 5. The Story of the Flood. You know the city of Shurapak? It stands on the banks of the Euphrates. That city grew old, and the gods that were in it were old. There was Anu, lord of the firmament, their father, and warrior Enlil, their counselor, Ninurta, the helper, and Enugi, watcher over canals. And with them also was Ea. In those days the world teemed, and people multiplied. The world bellowed like a wild bull, and the great god was aroused by the clamor. Enlil heard the clamor, and he said to the gods in council, the uproar of mankind is intolerable, and sleep is no longer possible by reason of the babble. So the gods agreed to exterminate mankind. Enlil did this, but Ea, because of his oath, warned me in a dream. He whispered their words to my house of reeds. Reed house, reed house, wall, O oh wall, hearken, reed house, wall, reflect. O man of Shurapak, son of the Uba'atutu, tear down your house and build a boat. Abandon possessions and look for life. Despise worldly goods and save your soul alive. Tear down your house, I say, and build a boat. These are the measurements of the bark, as you shall build her. Let Hexbeam equal her length. Let her deck be roofed like a vault that covers the abyss. Then take up into the boat the seed of all living creatures. When I had understood, I said to my lord, Behold what you have commanded, I will honor and perform. But how shall I answer the people, the city, the elders? Then Ea opened his mouth and said to me, his servant, Tell them this, I have learnt that Enlil is wrathful against me. I dare no longer walk in this land nor live in this city. I will go down to the gulf to dwell with Ea my lord. But on you he will rain down abundance, rare fish and shy wild fowl, a rich harvest tide. In the evening the rider of the storm will bring you wheat in torrents. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In the first light of dawn, all my household gathered round me. The children brought pitch, and the men whatever was necessary. On the fifth day, I laid the keel in the ribs. Then I made fast the planking. The ground space was one acre. Each side of the deck measured 120 cubits, making a square. I built six decks below, seven in all. I divided them into nine sections with bulkheads in between. I drove in wedges where needed. I saw to punt the poles and laid in supplies. The carriers brought oil in baskets. I poured pitch into the furnace and asphalt and oil. More oil was consumed in caulking, and more again. The master of the boat took into his stores. I slaughtered bullocks for the people, and every day I killed sheep. I gave the shipwrights wine to drink as though it were river water. Raw wine and red wine and oil and white wine. There was feasting then, as there is at this time of the New Year's festival. I myself anointed my head. On the seventh day, the boat was complete. Then was the launching full of difficulty. There was shifting of ballast above and below, till two-thirds was submerged. I loaded into her all that one had of gold. And of living things, my family, my kin, the beast of the field, both wild and tame, and all the craftsmen, I sent them on board. For the time that Shamash had ordained was already fulfilled when he said, In the evening, when the rider of the storm sends down the destroying rain, enter the boat and batten her down. The time was fulfilled. The evening came. The rider of the storm sent down the rain. I looked out at the weather, and it was terrible. So I too boarded the boat and battened her down. All was now complete. The battening and the caulking. So I handed the tiller to Pazur Amuri, the steerman, with the navigation and the care of the whole boat. With the first light of dawn, a black cloud came from the horizon. It thundered within where Adad, lord of the storm, was riding. In front, over hill and plain, Sholat and Hanish, heralds of the storm, led on. Then the gods of the abyss rose up. Nergal pulled out the dams of the nether waters. Ninurta, the warlord, threw down the dikes. And the seven judges of hell, the Anunnaki, raised their torches, lighting the land with their livid flame. A stupor of despair went up to heaven, when the god of the storm turned daylight to darkness, when he smashed the land like a cup. One whole day the tempest raged, gathering fury as it went. It poured over the people like the tides of battle. A imam could not see his brother, nor the people be seen from heaven. Even the gods were terrified at the flood. They fled to the highest heaven, the firmament of On. They crouched against the walls, cowering like curs. Then Ishtar, the sweet-voiced queen of heaven, cried out like a woman in travail. Alas, the days of old are turned to dust because I commanded evil. 
Why did I command this evil in the council of the gods? I commanded wars to destroy people, but are they not my people? For I brought them forth. Now like the spawn of fish they float in the ocean. The great gods of heaven and of hell wept. They covered their mouths. For six days and six nights the wind blew. Torrent and tempest and flood overwhelmed the world. Tempest and flood raged together like warring hosts. When the seventh day dawned, the storm from the south subsided. The sea grew calm, the flood was stilled. I looked at the face of the world, and there was silence. All mankind was turned to clay. The surface of the sea stretched as flat as a rooftop. I opened a hatch, and the light fell on my face. Then I bowed low. I sat down and I wept. The tears streamed down my face, for on every side was a waste of water. I looked for land in vain, but fourteen leagues distance there appeared a mountain, and there the boat grounded. On the mountain of Nasir, the boat held fast. She held fast and did not budge. One day she held, and a second day on the mountain of Nasir she held fast and did not budge. A third day and a fourth day she held fast on the mountain and did not budge. A fifth day and a sixth day she held fast on the mountain. When the seventh day dawned, I loosed a dove and let her go. She flew away, but finding no resting place she returned. Then I loosed a swallow, and she flew away, but finding no resting place she returned. I loosed a raven. She saw that the waters had retreated, she ate, she flew around, she cawed, and she did not come back. Then I threw everything open to the four winds. I made a sacrifice and poured out a libation on the mountaintop. Seven and again seven cauldrons I set up on their stands. I heaped up wood and cane and cedar and myrtle. When the gods smelled the sweet savor, they gathered like flies over the sacrifice. Then at last Ishtar also came. She lifted her necklace with the jewels of heaven that once Anu had made to please her. O oh, you gods here present, by the lapis lazuli round my neck, I shall remember these days as I remember the jewels of my throat. These last days I shall not forget. Let all the gods gather round the sacrifice, except Enlil. He shall not approach this offering, for without reflection he brought the flood. He consigned my people to destruction. When Enlil had come, when he saw the boat, he was wrath and swelled with anger at the gods and the host of heaven. Has any of these mortals escaped? Not one was to have survived the destruction. Then the god of the wells and canals, Ninurta, opened his mouth and said to the warrior Enlil, Who is there of the gods that can devise without Ea? It is Ea alone who knows all things. Then Ea opened his mouth and spoke to warrior Enlil, Wisest of gods, hero Enlil, how could you senselessly bring down the flood? Lay upon the sinner his sin, lay upon the transgressor his transgression. Punish him a little when he breaks loose, do not drive him too hard or he perishes. Would that a lion had ravaged mankind rather than the cloud. Would that a wolf have ravaged mankind rather than the flood. Would that a famine have wasted the world rather than the flood. Would that pestilence had wasted mankind rather than the flood. It was not I that revealed the secret of the gods. The wise man learned it in a dream. Now take your counsel. What shall be done with him? Then Enlil went up into the boat. He took me by the hand and my wife and made us enter the boat and kneel down on either side. He, standing between us, he touched our foreheads to bless us, saying, In time past Utnapishtim was a mortal man. Henceforth he and his wife shall live in the distance at the mouth of the rivers. Thus it was that the gods took me and placed me here to live in the distance at the mouth of the rivers. So there you go. There's the flood portion of the Epic of Gilgamesh. It really is a cool story, and there's an awful lot there. I'm not going to go so much into that in this podcast. I'll save that for something later, a blog post or maybe a follow-up podcast. But I will say that flood story is pretty similar to the story of Noah in the Bible, as well as some Native American flood stories. 
that are around there, and of course the Book of Enoch, which is actually not in the Bible and is not considered canon by Christians, but it's something that does exist, whether it's you know fake or not. It's interesting to say the least that there are so many of these old stories that, even if it is superficial, and even if a lot of the details don't really match up one to one, all kind of describe a similar catastrophe, you know, some sort of an ancient bad thing that happened. So is there really something there, or is it just that the human experience is kind of the same and hasn't changed much in thousands of years? That's up to you at that point. But just to recap before we move on, so the world is full of people, and the gods are getting tired of all the people. There's too much noise, there's too much chaos, and they can't just enjoy it anymore. So they get ticked, and they wipe it all out. And this actually kind of upsets Ishtar because she's kind of, oh, I get why you guys wiped him out, but this was kind of my thing and I'm sad about it. But it turns out one of them saved Utnapishtim and they're happy about it. And so in order to kind of make amends and whatnot, Utnapishtim gets to be immortal. So, moving on. Chapter 6, The Return. Utnapishtim said, As for you, Gilgamesh, who will assemble the gods for your sake, so that you may find the life for which you are searching? But if you wish, come and put into the test. Only prevail against sleep for six days and seven nights. But while Gilgamesh sat there resting on his haunches, a mist of sleep, like soft wool, teased from the fleece, drifted over him. And Utnapishtim said to his wife, Look at him now, the strong man who would have everlasting life. Even now the mists of sleep are drifting over him. His wife replied, Touch the man to wake him, so that he may return to his own land in peace going back through the gate by which he came. Utnapishtim said to his wife, All men are deceivers. Even you he will attempt to deceive. Therefore bake loaves of bread, each day one loaf, and put it beside his head, and make a mark on the wall to number the days he has slept. So she baked loaves of bread, each day one loaf, and put it beside his head. And she marked on the wall the days that he slept. And there came a day when the first loaf was hard, and the second loaf was like leather. The third was soggy, the crust of the fourth had mold, the fifth was mildewed, the sixth was fresh, and the seventh was still on the embers. Then Utnapishtim touched him and he woke. Gilgamesh said to Utnapishtim the far away, I hardly slept when you touched and roused me. But Utnapishtim said, Count these loaves and learn how many days you have slept. For your first is hard, your second like leather, your third is soggy, the crust of the fourth has mold, and your fifth is mildewed. Your sixth is fresh, and your seventh was still over the glowing embers when I touched and woke you. Gilgamesh said, What shall I do, O Utnapishtim? Where shall I go? Already the thief in the night has hold of my limbs. Death inhabits my room. Wherever my foot rests, there I find death. Then Utnapishtim spoke to Urshanabi the ferryman. Woe to you, Urshanabi. Now and forevermore you have become hateful to this harborage. It is not for you, nor for you are the crossings of this sea. Go now banished from the shore. But this man before whom you walked, bringing him here, whose body is covered with foulness and the grace of whose limbs has been spoiled by the wild skins, take him to the washing place. There he shall wash his long hair clean as snow in the water. He shall throw off his skins and let the sea carry them away, and the beauty of his body shall be shown. The fillet of his forehead shall be renewed, and he shall be given clothes to cover his nakedness, till he reaches his own city and his journey is accomplished. These clothes will show no sign of age. They will wear like a new garment. So Urshanabi took Gilgamesh and led him to the washing place. He washed his long hair clean as snow in the water. He threw off his skins which the sea carried away. 
and showed the beauty of his body. He renewed the fillet of his forehead, and to cover his nakedness gave him clothes which would show no sign of age, but would wear like a new garment until he returned to his own city, and his journey was complete. Then Gilgamesh and Urshanabi launched the boat onto the water and boarded it, and they made ready to sail away. But the wife of Utnapishtim the faraway said to him, Gilgamesh came here wearied out. He is worn out. What will you give him to carry him back to his own country? So Utnapishtim spoke, and Gilgamesh took a pole and brought the boat into the bank. Gilgamesh, you came here a man wearied out. You have worn yourself out. What shall I give you to carry you back to your own country? Gilgamesh, I shall reveal a secret thing. It is a mystery of the gods that I am telling you. There is a plant that grows under the water. It has a prickle like a thorn, like a rose. It will wound your hands. But if you succeed in taking it, then your hands will hold that which restores his lost youth to a man. When Gilgamesh heard this, he opened the sluices so that the sweet water current might carry him out to the deepest channel. He tied heavy stones to his feet, and they dragged him down to the waterbed. There he saw the plant growing. Although it pricked him, he took it in his hands. Then he cut the heavy stones from his feet, and the sea carried him and threw him onto the shore. Gilgamesh said to Urshanabi the ferryman, Come here and see this marvelous plant. By its virtue a man may win back all his former strength. I will take it to Uruk of the strong walls. There I will give it to the old men to eat. Its name shall be The Old Men Are Young Again, and at last I shall eat it myself and have back all my lost youth. So Gilgamesh returned to the gate through which he had come. Gilgamesh and Urshanabi went together. They traveled their twenty leagues, and then they broke their fast. After thirty leagues, they stopped for the night. Gilgamesh saw a well of cool water, and he went down and bathed. But deep in the pool there was lying a serpent, and the serpent sensed the sweetness of the flower. It rose out of the water and snatched it away, and immediately it sloughed its skin and returned to the well. Then Gilgamesh sat down and wept. The tears ran down his face, and he took the hand of Urshanabi. O oh, Urshanabi, was it for this that I toiled with my hands? Is it for this that I have wrung out my heart's blood? For myself I have gained nothing. Not I, but the beast of the earth has joy of it now. Already the stream has carried it twenty leagues back to the channels where I found it. I found a sign, and now I have lost it. Let us leave the boat on the bank and go. After twenty leagues they broke their fast. After thirty leagues they stopped for the night. In three days they had walked as much as a journey of a month and fifteen days. When the journey was accomplished, they arrived at Uruk, the strong-walled city. Gilgamesh spoke to him, to Urshanabi the ferryman. Urshanabi, climb up onto the wall of Uruk, inspect its foundation terrace, and examine the brickwork. See if it is not of burnt bricks, and did not the seven wise men lay these foundations? One-third of the whole city, one-third is garden and one-third is field, with the precinct of the goddess Ishtar. These parts and the precinct are all Uruk. This, too, was the work of Gilgamesh, the king, who knew the countries of the world. He was wise. He saw mysteries and knew secret things. He brought us a tale of the old days before the flood. He went a long journey, was weary, worn out with labor, and returning engraved on a stone the whole story. That's the end of chapter 6, and we see Gilgamesh finally get to confront Utnapishtim about becoming an immortal. It's a unique gift, though. Utnapishtim survived this huge flood pandemic, and his gift was given directly to him from the gods themselves. So, to demonstrate this, he challenges Gilgamesh to see if he can even stay awake for a week. And Gilgamesh, tired from his journey and his grief, falls asleep as soon as he sits down. And just to prove this to him, because they know he's an angry trickster, they bake a loaf of bread and set it beside him, one for each day. And so, when he wakes up, 
he has a week's worth of bread that's rotting and getting hard and moldy next to him, so he can't deny it. So Gilgamesh isn't going to get eternal life. So as he's leaving, he gets offered the next best thing. There's apparently some kind of plant that grows underwater that can restore his youth, right? So if he can't live forever, at least he can have another lifetime. So he goes, and he ties a bunch of stones to himself, and he manages to actually find the plant. But he's not going to take it for himself. He wants to test it on somebody first. So he wants to take it back to Uruk and give it to an old man to see if it's the real deal or you know, a trick or whatever he thinks it is. So as he sets it down to bathe, a snake gets it. And the snake gets it and immediately sheds its skin. So this snake is getting its youth restored. And so Gilgamesh realizes that that's it. He's doomed and he's mortal. And he finally has to accept that. But it's not all bad for Gilgamesh, though. Because when he finally returns to Uruk, he starts to tell Urshanabi, Look, look at these walls. Look at this place that I built. Look how good it is. So he seems like he's finally accepted his mortality. But that he's still a great figure, and he has done a lot, and he can kind of be a little bit proud of the life that he's lived up to this point, and it seems like Gilgamesh may have finally made his peace. Chapter 7. The Death of Gilgamesh The destiny was fulfilled which the father of the gods, Enlil of the mountain, had decreed for Gilgamesh. And nether earth the darkness will show him a light, of mankind all that are known. None will leave a monument for generations to come to compare with his. The heroes, the wise men, like the new moon, have their waxing and waning. Men will say, Who has ever ruled with might and with power like him? As in the dark month, the month of shadows, so without him there is no light. O oh, Gilgamesh, this was the meaning of your dream. You were given the kingship, such was your destiny. Everlasting life was not your destiny. Because of this, do not be sad at heart. Do not be grieved or oppressed. He has given you power to bind and to loose to be the darkness and the light of mankind. He has given unexampled supremacy over the people, victory in battle from which no fugitive returns, in forays and assaults from which there is no going back. But do not abuse this power. Deal justly with your servants in the palace. Deal justly before the face of the sun. The king has laid himself down and will not rise again. The lord of Kolob will not rise again. He overcame evil, he will not come again. Though he was strong of arm, he will not rise again. He had wisdom and a comely face, he will not come again. He has gone into the mountain, he will not come again. On the bed of fate he lies, he will not rise again. Front the couch of many colors, he will not come again. The people of the city, great and small, are not silent. They lift up the lament. All men of flesh and blood lift up the lament. Fate has spoken, like a hooked fish he lies stretched on the bed, like a gazelle that is caught in a noose. Inhuman namtar is heavy upon him. Namtar that has neither hand nor foot, that drinks no water and eats no meat. For Gilgamesh, son of Ninsun, they weighed out their offerings. His dear wife, his son, his concubine, his musicians, his jester, and all his household, his servants, his stewards, all who lived in the palace weighed out their offerings for Gilgamesh, the son of Ninsun, the heart of Uruk. They weighed out their offerings to Ereshkigal, the queen of death, and to all the gods of the dead, to Namtar, who is fate, they weighed out the offering. Bread for Ned, the keeper of the gate. Bread for Ningizida, the god of the serpent, the lord of the tree of life. For Dumuzi also, the young shepherd. For Enki and Ninki. For Endukuga and Nindukuga. And Enmul and Nimmul. All the ancestral gods, forebearers of Enlil. A feast for Sholpe, the god of feasting. For Samukwan, god of the herds. For Dai Mother Ninersog. 
and the gods of creation in the place of creation. For the host of heaven, priest and priestess, weighed out the offering of the dead. Gilgamesh, the son of Ninsun, lies in the tomb. At the place of offerings, he weighed the bread offering. At the place of libation, he poured out the wine. In those days the Lord Gilgamesh departed, the son of Ninsun, the king, peerless, without an equal among men, who did not neglect Enlil his master. O Gilgamesh, Lord of Kalab, great is thy praise. And that concludes the Epic of Gilgamesh. That last part was really just a lament of the town mourning the death of Gilgamesh, and that there will probably never be another being like him, because he was two-thirds god and one-third man. One thing I find interesting is that, seeing as how this is a religious text, there's actually next to nothing in it about the afterlife. Which is strange, because that always seems to be one of the highlights of religion. Especially when you consider that not too long, you know, separated in time, Egypt would be just infatuated with the afterlife. And even the Jews who come on a little later and whose own stories in Genesis have a lot in common with especially the flood part of Gilgamesh, it's all kind of about the afterlife, about salvation and fate. But that's it. If you listen to these two episodes, then you can say that you've been through the entire Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, I know there's a lot of conversation that people always want to have about the flood story and the Book of Enoch and Genesis and all the things that are related. And I think what I'm going to do is actually do another episode and just focus on that in specific. So before that episode comes out, which might be a little bit because I need to brush up on my Enoch, uh, you can check out waitinginpodcast.com, and I'll have a blog post up when this episode comes out that'll give you some other places to go. Uh, one of the things that interests me, I think more so than even Enoch and Gilgamesh and Genesis, is a lot of the Native American stories. There's tons of them that talk about flood stories, and some of them that are, I think, more similar to like Genesis than our Epic of Gilgamesh that, you know, sadly kind of get brushed to the side, but... You know, they go from that same flood progression, but some of them even get into Tower of Babel. You know, they go much further into that. So definitely go check out WaitingInPodcast.com. I also keep a Facebook page. Just search for Waiting In Podcast. What I do with the Facebook page is mostly just news stories, things that I find interesting. You can also find me on Minds.com. My handle is at ObiWade. I now also have a YouTube channel and a BitChute channel, so if you prefer the video version, feel free to do that. Definitely check it out. Um, There's links to all this stuff on WaitingInPodcast.com. But that's it for this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next time. The music in this episode, in order of occurrence. Return of the Mummy. Dark Times, Division, Shadowlands Codex, Lost Frontier, Sneaky Snitch, Our Story Begins, The Pyre, Oppressive Gloom, Curse of the Scarab, Gregorian Chant, and Jalandahar, by Kevin McLeod, and available at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons, by Attribution 3.0. See creativecommons.org for more information.
If you like Lore and Legends, consider supporting the show at buymeacoffee.com slash loreandlegends with a one-time gift that will cost less than a cup of coffee. You can also follow on Instagram, where my handle is at loreandlegends1, and on Twitter, at loreandlegends3. You can also subscribe to the Lore and Legends YouTube channel, which features video versions of all your favorite episodes. And of course, the official website, loreandlegends.net. Thanks for checking out Lore and Legends. See you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.